It's our Founders Day, and it's also a day when we pause to honor a special member. And because of that, we have a piece of music that's being played this morning by a very special young man. He's the son of Don and Nancy Montagna. And for those of you who have looked at your program, our senior leader will not be playing the violin. <laughs> he has many talents, but that's not one of them. <laughs> and so I want to introduce to you for uh, the opening of our program, Dan Montagna, Don and Nancy's son. The Washington Ethical Society is an educational, humanistic, and religious fellowship dedicated to the belief that the greatest moral and spiritual values are to be found in raising the quality of human relationships. And so this morning, we'll be focusing on the founding of ethical culture in 1876 the founding of the Washington Society in the, uh, 1945. And we'll be learning a little bit about the history of ethical culture. And last but not least, we'll be honoring our senior leaders 20 years at the Washington Ethical Society. And so this morning to begin, we have a very special presentation. The people that founded the Washington Society during World War II, that generation built this building and launched the Washington Ethical Society with about 20 members. And their legacy is a legacy that you and I enjoy to this day. And so with that in mind, 
We've created something called the Beecham Fund, which is named after George Beecham, one of our founders and our first leader here. And I want to bring forward Julie Campbell, who will talk to you a little bit about the fund and honorees that we want to honor this morning. Julie? Fund is really our generation's version of founders and these this is a foundation that um, will create the seed money to be used for programs that will eventually become self-funding but that in the beginning can't be um, this is kind of, the Beecham Fund is an endowment fund so this is a gift that just sort of keeps on giving and this is this is our way of, um, you know, we, we can't provide a, a new building for the next generation because we already have a building, but we can give them the wherewithal to carry forward the um, ethical culture movement into the 21st century. Uh, we have a plaque that's going to be um, mounted in the back here, and uh, we're, we're very pleased to have been able to put the the names of our first members of the Beecham Foundation on this plaque and I would like to tell you this morning who those people are and to um, ask those who are here to come up and uh, shake hands and be acknowledged. Um, Patty Absher, Catherine Beecham who is not here today, Adrian Dern, I think I saw, um, a deceased member, Judith Harkison, Eleanor and Robert Heppy, who I understand are traveling this morning, Evelyn Jacob and Bruce Davis, Nancy Jennison is also deceased. Um, these are all people who have given to Wes in their wills either $10,000 or 10% of their estate. So that's um, a very special honor that we want to recognize this morning. Uh, but, but, I haven't, but I haven't finished calling the names. I simply interrupted myself to tell you, <laughs> to tell you what those names mean. Um, Sonia Mackelson, who is also deceased, Nancy and Don Montagna, <laughs> and Sharon Newworth and Peter Kent. So these are people to whom uh, we will be much indebted in the future. Thank, Thank you. talk about the history and the philosophy of ethical culture unless you go back a little over a hundred years to the 1870s and become familiar with a man named Felix Adler. Felix Adler was the founder of ethical culture and grew up in a very uh, traditional Jewish home where his life was pretty well planned for him. His father was a rabbi who came from a long line of rabbis. 
and was head of Temple Emmanuel in New York, one of the largest, wealthiest congregations to this day. Radis Book says that Felix, as a young man growing up, was dreamy and didn't seem to be highly motivated. Family members were worried about him and thought maybe they could find him a place in the jewelry business when he grew up. But Adler changed over time and put uh, his uh, shoulder to the grindstone and became quite an achiever in the area of academics. And so his father and mother sent him to Europe to study religion, ethics, philosophy, with the idea in mind that as soon as he graduated, he would succeed his father in Temple Emmanuel. Adler went to Europe, and it was quite an eye-opener. He noticed that his colleagues made fun of him, and he noticed that they treated women in particularly cheaply, that they used them for uh, pleasure and didn't build relationships with them. And Adler was shocked by this. He said, we have to build a world where people are honored and not violated. And that should be the central theme of any religious group. And this was become, to become a central theme of Adler throughout his years. Finally, he came back from Europe, and in his first and last sermon at Temple Emmanuel, he called for a religion of the future. He said a religion not confined to the church and synagogue, but a new religion that we live out in our lives based on rational thinking, good moral choices, and honoring the uniqueness, creativity, and worthiness of everyone. And so he left the synagogue, and those who were inspired by his message asked him to speak to them. Now, back in those days, there wasn't TV, and there, there wasn't a radio, and the highlight of the week was to go to a good Sunday morning talk. And in fact, as Adler's popularity grew, he became uh, such a popular speaker that over 600 people would come and hear him on a Sunday. And so the group that uh, felt he really was meeting a need asked him to form ethical culture and found an ethical society, which is now the New York Society for Ethical Culture and is right there at Central Park and 64th in New York City. Adler said, there is a great and crying evil in our society. It is one of purpose. We need the ethical culture movement to lead us in finding a common ground between the believer and non-believer. And he believed that that common ground could be found if all individuals united in freedom of thought and right action. This would mean that what you believed about ultimate reality, what your creed or dogma was or lack thereof, was sacred to you. But where you and I and others can unite is on that common ground of ethical living and ethical choices. And for those who wanted it to be a religion, it would. Who, for those who wanted it to be a philosophy of living, it would. He said, we are looking for ethical standards together that can give meaning 
to our daily lives. And so, out of these regular Sunday meetings, a community formed that addressed social action, emphasized strong uh, action to address social injustice, and in fact, that first group worked for tenement reform, feeding the hungry and homeless. They created a free kindergarten, the first one of its kind, for working-class family children. They created the Visiting Nurses Association to give medical care to the poor. And they worked for tenement reform in every way they could. But as the movement, as the community grew, they recognized that there was something else that this group needed. Adler, up till this time, had not liked the idea of having a, uh, a, found, a uh, structure that would be like a religious community. But what they found was that people wanted ceremonies. They needed to mark special passages in their lives. They needed a way to be with one another in times of crisis. And they wanted to observe those rites of passages. And so Adler formed a humanistic community that had all the, the traditions of a traditional religion, and yet was founded in freedom of thought and action. He said, it is upon those we love that we must anchor ourselves. We must anchor ourselves spiritually with them so in such a way that our sense of interconnectedness stands out vividly. So he saw the importance of the bonding of a community for both our own spiritual growth and the advancement of a better world. And so, to head those communities, he created a title called Leader. Now, what do leaders do? The press asked Adler. Well, they must counsel, do weddings, and most of all, they have to be the flame burning on the altar. That in their Sunday morning talks, there's no sacred book that they can turn to they must look inside themselves for inspiration, and they must inspire their members to lead the right kinds of lives. And so the movement grew and spread throughout the United States and around the world. Adler became very well known, wrote many books, and he spawned a whole generation of new leaders uh, for St. Louis and Chicago and Philadelphia. And as we travel down through time, members of the New York Society and the St. Louis Society came to Washington to work during the war years and founded a small ethical society here. When they did that, uh, George Beecham and Catherine Beecham and the McIntyres were moving forces in creating that group and creating a Sunday school and having it grow. And George Beecham was our first leader. In fact, when he and Catherine retired to Florida, George used to take the train up here for Sundays and go back. And he was unpaid. Following George was Ed Erickson who left to become the leader of the New York Society and is now retired in Florida writing books. Maybe we have a trend here, I'm not sure. And then 20 years ago, uh, when Ed left, 
the Washington Society was faced with finding a new leader. And so I wasn't here at that point. So I've asked some people who were around when Don came down from New York to give us their experience, not you, Don. <laughs> hard for him not to be involved, as some of you know. <laughs> so I've asked two very special people to share with us what it was like and what happened when Don came down. And we're going to begin with our own Joelle Silverman. Um, <clears throat> when I came in 1967, uh, Ed Erickson was still the leader. He was a um, formal academic sort of person, uh, very reserved, kind of untouchable, um, a brilliant speaker and a brilliant man. Anyway, uh, the New York Society uh, hired him to come up and be the leader there, <clears throat> and we were without a leader, and we decided that we would spend a year looking at, at ourselves and what we wanted for a leader. So we had, we were about 150 members then. Um, <clears throat> and we had small group meetings, dinners in people's houses, and we talked about what we wanted in a leader, what he should be like, and all of those things. Then a search committee was formed at the end of the year, and a lot of candidates um, were presented. And finally, they narrowed it down to two people. Uh, one was Don. And one was a man named Tom, whose last name I've forgotten. Uh, <clears throat> he had been an, uh, he was an ex-priest, and also kind of a formal sort of person. He wore a suit, uh, and uh, <laughs> gave a very creditable uh, platform address. Um, and then the, uh, uh, both men were, were brought in for a lot for interviews with the search committee and interviews with the board and committees and there were parties in their honor and finally the big membership vote came and I, I hate to tell you, <laughs> voted for Tom. <laughs> uh, the uh, smarter ones in the organization and the majority uh, voted for Don and um, Don is what we got. Uh, <laughs> Tom went on to um, be the leader of the Boston Ethical Society. And about a year or so later, we heard that uh, they fired him because he spent most of his time hanging out in bars and very little of his time uh, at the Boston Ethical Society. <laughs> which just shows, shows you what a genius I am at uh, character. <laughs> um, Don, on the other hand, uh, spent mostly all of his time here and slept on the couch in the office half the time. Uh, the membership at that time was about, um, mostly in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And most congregations, uh, when they go to hire a minister or a leader, look for a father figure. Don was 29, had a mustache, long hair, uh, slightly to the right of hippie, 
uh, and wore an army jacket. He claims he didn't, but I remember it, and I know that he didn't have a suit. Uh, anyhow, so, so most congregations want a father figure. We obviously hired a son figure. Uh, he was the youngest member. And I was afraid, I was very nervous about the fact that we had hired a holy terror as well. Uh, but that was mostly because of the way he looked. Anyhow, he, uh, I'm tired. Um, shortly after he came, maybe within the first month, uh, a member died, Mike Amrine, a guy in his 40s, had a sudden fulminating illness and died in a few days. Uh, he had written a very well-received biography of Hubert Humphrey. So the funeral was to be in the Senate office building, and lots of senators and congressmen were coming. And uh, they asked Don to do the service. <laughs> and he didn't have a suit, and he didn't have time to buy a suit. Maxine Pinot uh, was the secretary in the office at the time, and she had a son, Andy, who was 17 and skinny and gangly. He had a suit. So Maxine, Maxine brought in Andy's suit, and it hit him about here on his sleeves and above the ankles. Uh, and off, we sent him off to do the, the memorial service. A dapper Don he wasn't. Uh, Anyhow, he came in like gangbusters or a breath of fresh air, made lots of changes. Most important to me was he changed my job. I was the Sunday school director up until that point, and he turned me into the community coordinator, and uh, I've loved it ever since. Uh, he uh, instituted board retreats, which we had never had before, uh, and that was a good idea, except that the first one was less than perfect, I thought. We were 16 people. We, we high, rented a house just outside of Annapolis um, with one bathroom <laughs> for the whole weekend. Things have I think they have two bathrooms now where they, where they go. Uh, also, he streamlined the board meetings. And for those of you who are on the board or have been, whatever you think of them now, uh, they're a thousand times better than uh, what they used to be. They used to go on until midnight, Herbie, you must remember that. And there were no timed agendas, so the talk was circular and uh, repetitive. But anyhow, Don really pulled it together. Um, <clears throat> he also uh, spearheaded the buying of the Eberhardt School and making it the Washington Ethical Society School. Anyhow, he has had made many changes, has had many creative ideas, most of them brilliant. Uh, and it keeps amazing me that they, the ideas and creativity still keeps coming, um, as old as he is. <laughs> he is now older than I was when he arrived. And I'm sure that at the time he thought of me as that old lady, what does she know? And, but I'll tell you what I know. I know that Don Montagna is the best thing that ever happened to the Washington Ethical Society and to the American Ethical Union, especially since he shaved off his mustache and bought a suit. <laughs>
Well, our next speaker is going to have his work cut out for him. He's got a hard act to follow. Our next speaker is our adjunct leader, our marrying Sam, uh, extraordinary member of West, Herb Blinder. Up till now, I thought Judy was a friend of mine, but <laughs> having me follow Joel is one of the dirtiest tricks that was ever uh, perpetrated. I had a lot of very funny stories to tell, but who can follow Joel? Uh, the uh, few things I am going to tell you about the search committee and our work uh, at that time, I have to first preface by saying it may sound astounding or might have sounded astounding if Joel hadn't stolen all the thunder, but uh, uh, we're committed to the truth in this building. Uh, that's one of the tenets uh, that uh, Adler laid down, and so what I tell you is going to be true, even though unlikely. Uh, before we started interviewing all the leaders, there was a lot of internal debate as to whether we really wanted a leader. It was a, we thought very highly of Ed Erickson and felt that uh, he had given us a great deal. But then there was the question, there, there were leaderless societies and uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, brilliant people in, uh, among the membership, as we always do. And uh, there was a question of whether or not we couldn't have a sort of a communal uh, leadership. As a matter of fact, uh, what Joel didn't say is uh, uh, the fellow that didn't get chosen, who did go to Boston, uh, wasn't entirely a flop uh, in Boston because Boston has now gotten along. After their experience with him, Boston now refuses to get a leader. <laughs> um, and uh, they still survived. Uh, it may be very tiny, but they like it that way, I guess. We did, after about a, after several months of internal debate, decide yes, we really did want to get a leader. We thought it was important for the society to have a leader, and we did invite every potential leader candidate to come talk on the platform. At the time that Don gave his talk, and I can't remember what it was, to be honest with you, Don, but it was very obviously very inspirational because somebody who had wandered in off the street was so struck with it that he came up forward and asked and virtually commanded us all to go into a sort of trance for a few minutes while we thought about the words we had just heard. <laughs> and we had a very, uh, a very good uh, president at that time uh, who was uh, a teacher and therefore used to uh, observing aberrant behavior. Uh, <laughs> and uh, very tolerant. Uh, so he let it go on for quite a while until one of our uh, members uh, uh, got up and said, uh, you know, enough's enough. Uh, we have to get back and uh, w some of us want to go to lunch before too long. And uh, through all of this, uh, Don seemed to be uh, enjoying the, uh, the whole experience. Some of us were very embarrassed. When we met with him afterwards, he calmed us down. He said he found it a, a very interesting uh, uh, thing it never happened to him before, and uh, 
we didn't know the kind of people he was going to bring into this society. <laughs> uh, well, I want to tell you a few things that when we did meet in camera as the search committee, uh, I was a member of that search committee. There were a few other people here who were members of that committee, and you bear me out. I want to tell you some of the things that I found personally in his favor. He had a beard. <laughs> he had a VW camper. So did I. There were points against him. He wanted to be a part-time leader. We weren't sure that was going to work, but he was insistent that he could do the job and only needed to work part-time. And we had uh, a budget forecast. We knew exactly what we could pay him. It was about one-third of the poverty level. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's, uh, I think the poverty level uh, and his salary has gone up since then, but probably still doesn't quite meet. Uh, but he also proposed to live in the foothills of Virginia and commute, uh, about two and a half hour drive. And we were very, very uh, loath to take someone who uh, was going to take our money for this hardworking congregation and show up occasionally and give us a couple of days a week, maybe. After all, it could, in a VW camper, you get, it, it wasn't a piece of really reliable transportation, I know. However, there were some clinchers. The biggest clincher was, he said, and I, 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 I told you at the beginning, this was gonna be an honest talk, he was willing to come as a part-time leader with a renewable contract from year to year, but he pledged that he was not going to stay more than five years. Because <laughs> he said it was his experience, and he, he looked mature with a beard beyond his years. He had studied uh, the, the movement and decided that in five years' time, a leader was burnt out in any particular society and should move on to another society. Well, we got together and said, it's a risk, but at least in five years, we'll be finished with it one way or another. <laughs> and so we've had to grapple with the idea that ethical people have to be flexible and so I'm very very happy that Don's views have changed in 20 years. Well you've heard from Joel and you've heard from Herb but I think there is one person that we really need to talk to in order to understand Don's being here at Wes. And so what I'd like to do is bring forward a very distinguished visitor to us this morning, Hair Dr. Felix Adler. <laughs> Thank you.
Before I open uh, this part of our program to group sharing, I'd like to sh uh, tell you a few things about what it's been like for me in my 13 years of being with Don. 13 years ago, I called the West office and I got Joelle Silverman. There was a staff opening and came down and met with her and knew I had found a home, a spiritual home, a community for myself. She said, before we hire you, though, you have to talk to our leader, and he's down on a mountain in Virginia somewhere. And so she got Don on the line, and we had this conversation. And what struck me about Don was his enthusiasm, his ability to see the future, and I got excited about being part of this community. About four years after being here, I went to Don and said, I'd like to be a leader. And he said, you don't want to do that. <laughs> he said, wait a year. Think about it. You don't want to do that. So I waited a year and thought about it and came back and went into leadership training. Now, this was not an unusual occurrence because one of the things that Don has done over the years is foster leadership in every form. We have four leaders in the movement now that were directly trained by Don and developed. Susan Baggett of the Northern Virginia Society, Steve Boyan, me. He's now working with Claire Wilson and uh, who did I miss, Don? Judith Espenshe. So he has been instrumental in the development of other ethical societies. He helped spin off the Northern Virginia Society. Here in Washington, our membership has doubled since Don came. He helped me form and develop the plan for our service committee, which is now a program that is uh, highly regarded and respected by the entire movement. Along with Lynn Wayman and a few others, he put together our School for Ethics over 15 years ago with one class and our adult education program now reaches out over to 1,500 students a year. But the thing that stands out for me about Don is his love of people, his high energy, and his commitment to our spiritual growth, each and every one of us. And so the person that I was 13 years ago is very different from the person I am today. And I would say, that Don has been a major factor in my becoming who I am today. And so I am thrilled to be honoring him on this his 20th anniversary as we celebrate his work with us. And at this point, I'd like to open for group sharing. Well, I came here in 1968, so from my point of view, Don was four or five years late in arriving. <laughs> Where is this guy? Um, one of the first things that I heard about Don's leadership although I never personally saw this, was that in the office, when he was in the process of creating, he would walk on the furniture rather than on the floor. <laughs> it just held, it helped him think better. You know, he could just get into it, and he'd step from the desk to the chair to the top of the file cabinet, then over and walk along the couch, and then he'd jump up to the desk again, kind of like a wild animal. <laughs> And I think what stands out for me about uh, being with Don in this organization and as a friend, too, is uh, working with him on committees or councils or boards. How many of you have ever 
been in a committee meeting or any kind of a meeting with Don. Probably a lot of people here. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful experience, and what I learned from it is that there is no separation between work and play, between life and work, between play and life, and between the work of creating an ethical society like this and the play of living. And that's a great gift. Thank you. I can't let an empty microphone go to waste. Um, I worked a lot of, with Don when I first got here, and I was just thinking, uh, right recently, I, I am an internal consultant of the Department of Labor writing training programs, and I've been thinking about how much stuff is pure Don Montagna <laughs> that I put forth, and I appreciate it. I was working on the creative process recently. I can't believe that Paul and I have been here for half the time that Don has been here, but that's because 10 years ago, Paul and I were going to get married, and we said, well, we don't just want to go to a justice of a peace, and neither of us has been to the churches we've been brought up in for many years, so we can't go back there. So I was using my network, and I talked to a friend who'd recently gotten married, and she said, well, we had Don Montagna. And I said, oh, who's he? Well, he's, he's at the Ethical Society. And I said, well, I've never been there. She said, well, let me give you his phone number. I said, okay, give me his phone number. So one day I called him up, and he answered the phone, and I said, hi, I'm Patty Absher, and my husband, uh, the man I want to marry, Paul Baker, and I are looking for someone to marry us, and we heard that you're very good. And will you marry us? And he said, well, let me check my calendar and see if the day you want is open. And he did, and, and he married us, and it was the first time we'd ever come to the society when we came here to meet with him for the premarital counseling. And so what I learned about Don right away was that he is a person who really wants to give you what you need. And he brought us here, and I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, I wanted to thank you, Don, for um, by the model of how you live and by being around you, there's an idea that started out as just a possibility and then became sort of maybe this is true, and has become a kind of a, a deep faith and a very important idea in my life. And that is the idea that there is no situation so complicated that there isn't a way through it that respects the worth of all the parties involved. And I want to thank you for giving that to me. I wanted to share um, a recent recollection. Um, this year, uh, to tell you that Don is fostering leadership at all levels of the society, uh, this year Don ran a leadership support uh, course and group for a group of us who were all green and scared to death and sharing activities, for, uh, sharing activities in the society for the first time. And it was really a, the most loving and amazing procedure. He took the whole group of us forged us into community so that we were supporting one another, uh, found us all out in two minutes, saw all of our vulnerabilities, but loved us anyway. And I think by the end of the year, had us all a bit stronger, wiser, and more willing to accept new challenges. Thank you very much, Don. Um, the thing that I would like to say about, about Don is the thing that I really like the most is that um, he doesn't allow himself to be above the rest of us. You know, he really has always considered himself part of the community, one of the people, and, um, you know, not sort of a god on high. 
and a really human person, and he can be very caring and kind and considerate. But the thing that I hate about Don is that he's a human being. <laughs> well, I would just like to attest to the fact of Don's being committed uh, and loving the, the people around him and committed to their growth because when I first came here, um, I lacked a lot of things and uh, Don and the society gave me the room uh, to explore them and to grow and to become something more. And I think it's Don's influence that uh, allows that, um, that idea to still be nurtured and to, to grow here, and I really appreciate it. Uh, two stories I think of when I think of Don. The first is that he asked you to do things that you realize, that you never knew you could do. And with him and his support, you do them. So you find other parts of yourself. The other thing is, years ago I was chairing some committee and I was working on something with him because I had to go to the board and I was asking for something or justifying something. And he was with me and supporting me and we're going to do this. And I, so I thought, oh well, you know, he's on my side. He said, no, he was going to the other group too and he was going to support them and help them find what was right in their, their part. And I thought, wow. I mean, he went for the truth and somehow we get there. Thank you. I haven't been here long enough to have a great anecdote, but I... Uh, or even a marginal one. But I just want to say to you, Don, personally, my life has changed since I came here, and, and uh, I'm ever so grateful, and I really appreciate your friendship, and, and uh, it's been wonderful for me. I think I'm going to have to ask you, too, to... Well, I feel like Don has been with me in so many different parts of my life, I don't even know what to appreciate most, but I, I guess I feel like, Don, you're just not afraid to be in any situation, and that's what I really like. I feel like you were, you were with me when I was single, and I had relationships collapsing, and you married me, and you were with me and my husband when we lost our first baby in the emergency room. And um, I was really impressed by that, that someone would come right into a scene that horrible. Um, and most recently, um, you've been my consultant as the um, uh, high school board chair choosing a new principal. And I really appreciate all these different places you've been with me in my life over the last 10 years. First of all, ditto on many of the other comments that were already made. Um, I just want to acknowledge, although I think we all know this, but it's so easy to not, I don't want to let it go for granted. I have loved over these last 11 years your talks. I love the fact that they so often deal with psychological topics or topics about intimacy and relationships. I know there are many other things that ethical culture considers, but those are my favorite. 
and I've really enjoyed it, and I've loved the tapes, and um, I kind of get to have you with me in my car, in my bedroom, <laughs> on tape that is, <laughs> in a very ethical way. I get to kind of carry Don around with me. I might have other thoughts sometimes, but I do listen to the tapes. And uh, I pass them along to my friends and uh, spread out little uh, bits of ethical culture. My friends uh, have a terrible fight with their spouse and say, I can't stand this person. So I say, wait, wait, I've got the tape for you. Why love fails? So anyway, uh, that's been a real rich part of my life. And I also want to thank you on, uh, from a very personal note of counseling me. I went to see Don when I was uh, pregnant, uh, 40, unmarried. Uh, and uh, felt very um, concerned about what would happen with my baby and whether the society would accept me. And you all have been wonderful with that, and Don gave very good advice. So thank you for many good years. I'd like to compliment Don on his very good taste and common sense. He married Nancy and brought her here, and he's been darn lucky. We can't be done, Don. Oh, uh, Don, you've given me so much. When I first walked in here in 76, uh, Don and Lynn were just about to begin teaching the very first relationship building course. And I needed that right then. And I got in there, and that has transformed my life. Um, because out of knowing Lynn uh, there and starting to build a relationship with her, um, we have this... Uh, um, wonderful relationship, marriage, child, and Don was there at the beginning and um, nurtured us along and supported us in so many ways. Uh, when I thought about what I might say this morning, I thought, um, it just came to me, well, what attribute of Don that he possesses as a leader here would I like to have more of? And I looked within and I said, well, what I'm really nurturing um, I've learned a heck of a lot about leadership here, having been vice president and president, chairman of the school board and so forth. But the skills to lead ethically that I then take out into any place I choose to lead, over to college or wherever. Uh, but one that I'm still working on that you, you're, um, I, I really admire is uh, your willpower, Don. How, for example, at, at a meal, you know, there's another round of desserts and you can say, very easily say, no, and that's it. Or you can say yes, too. Okay? So either way, you make very good choices and stick to them, support them, and I'm working on that. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Claire. <laughs> it's wonderful to be in this room today uh, with so much laughter and love and to be reminded uh, of the catalyst of our community. Um, I appreciate uh, very much that um, even though I may bump heads with Don from time to time and really not understand the counsel that he's giving me at the time, mm -hmm. that it has a way of enduring uh, when I grow into the situation. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for that insight. I hope with all of the love that we've uh, expressed towards you today that perhaps we're looking forward to another 20 years. <laughs> <laughs>
ask Roberta Geyer to come up here. It is traditional and part of our Founders Day ceremony where we're honoring a special member, and today it is Don Montagne, that we give a plaque or a gift of some kind. So when I talked to Don last fall about today, I said, what would be something you would like? Well, in the New York Society, as you walk into the main hall on the front stage, you see a sign. And that sign hangs in many of the large societies along the East Coast. And so Don wanted the sign to be hung on the stage in honor of his 20th anniversary. And Roberta Geyer now, head of our celebrations team, will speak to that. Well, for long, as long as I've been hanging around the Ethical Society, and it's going to be eight years, I'm hard to believe, and celebrations team, Don has always commented on how New York has one. Baltimore has one, Boston has one, Philadelphia has one, but the Washington Ethical Society does not have one. And this one is an inscription that says, where people meet to seek the highest is holy ground. And now, Washington has. And at the, having this sign transforms this place into a spiritual room. Um, the song that the chorus sang today, um, Hope is Alive, speaks to the essential spirit of ethical culture. Because we are a community who cares about the world and want to make things work. No matter how gloomy things get, we don't give up. We try to live, not just survive, but have rich, loving lives. We have a vision of where of the world where people can live without fear and hate. We work to make changes in the world come about. Because we look at the world as one large family, we are empowered. There is no limit to what we can create for ourselves and others. Because we are united in our vision, we will succeed in making a different world. This inscription has many words that may be charged, but the song, Hope is Alive, describes what is the highest. The dictionary says, holy means dedicated to religious use. The purpose of our religion is to enlist the best. And this is where we meet to challenge ourselves, to create, to work, to grow, to play, to enjoy each other, and to reach out to make a difference to our community and the world. And I hope that you will take these ideas and take the, sign, the words and the sign and think about it and live the message. Um, it's a great pleasure to work with this, and I would like to thank Mimi Henry, who did an enormous amount of legwork and research, and also Lynn Tarakan, who I had a great opportunity to work with and get the aesthetics together. Thank you.
those of us, though, that wanted a more personal gift for Don, and so from the members, we have a special gift, and John Griffin, our president, is going to come forward to present that. <laughs> this, this is a but Don Montagna. As I understand it, um, an anniversary is a celebration of a relationship, and so this is the beginning of my equal time to talk about the other end of this relationship. <laughs> and uh, I do really mean that in the sense of relationship because um, leaders are obviously not born. Uh, they're created out of a relationship, and this particular group um, when I came here, had a culture, an attitude towards leadership. Um, it, it can happen in groups where leaders are expected to be um, perfect. And if they're not, people like turn their backs on areas of weakness. And so the whole group suffers because those areas aren't addressed. And other groups, when they say that, see that the leader isn't perfect, they go after him for being not a perfect leader. And from the day I got here, that wasn't the case. That people were very straight and honest with me about where I needed development, very encouraging about, about finding whatever I needed to learn how to do that, and giving me some help saying, and so-and-so will do it until you get your act together. Uh, there was always that growth attitude towards me. And, and it's true about the five years. And after five years, uh, Phil Sayer took me out to lunch and said, Listen, I know you're going to leave in five years because you believe that after five years, the leader's really taught the group what he has to teach. But we think we've taught you in something the last five years, and we'd like you to stick around and give it back. <laughs> we've got an investment. And, and I think that that is how it has been for me. And it is um, uh, not accurate. It's not fair. It's not real to think about all the things that are created here um, without realizing that I, I've just had a, a, the privilege to, to work with people who've created the, the service committee and the educational programs and the high school and all the things that this community, it, it's just a thrill to, to, I mean, I started out as a member and now I get to do this all day long and you pay me. And for that, 
I get today. You know, it's been it's been a joy. And I want to tell you that this this uh, where people meet to seek the highest is holy ground uh, is very important to me, in the sense that a lot of people come to this community and see a nice community and they want to be part of something because it's an enjoyable and a very fertile place to be. But it's enjoyable and fertile because of the ideas and the spirit behind it, from which it comes, from which you join in. And a statement like that can be meaningless. I mean, what is the highest after all? It also can be trite. But it also is a real statement that in our personal relationships, our family, husband, wife, children, our friendships, our workplace, we're always eliciting something. And it is possible to keep our eye on that notion of finding out what the highest is. And it is fun. And when we are at the time of facing our own grave, and you think about my life, and ultimately the question does come, how will it count? What did I contribute to? And that question is not important to us just at our grave time. It's also a question we may not look at every single day, but it's in our heart. How, how do I count? What am I, how am I participating? And I just love the fact that I'm living my life with people who live in that question. Thanks a lot, and I do appreciate the sign tremendously. Thank you. this morning happen, but I especially want to thank our chorus, 
our skit players, everyone made this morning happen.